This podcast is sponsored by CFA Institute, the global association of investment professionals whose mission is to lead the investment profession by promoting the highest standards of ethics, education, and professional excellence for the ultimate benefit of society. CFA Institute serves a global community of investment professionals working to build an investment industry where investors' interests come first, financial markets function at their best, and economies grow. The Chartered Financial Analyst Credential is the most respected and recognized investment management designation in the world. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of CFA Institute. Hello and welcome, everyone. I'm Patrick O'Shaughnessy, and this is Invest Like the Best. This show is an open-ended exploration of markets, ideas, methods, stories, and of strategies that will help you better invest both your time and your money. You can learn more and stay up to date at InvestorFieldGuide.com. Patrick O'Shaughnessy is a Principal and Portfolio Manager at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Patrick and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. My guests this week are both veterans of the podcast, Jason Zweig and Morgan Housel. They are two of the best in the world at making the complicated simple, and in that spirit, I'll keep this introduction short. Morgan shifted from public markets to private markets a year ago when he joined the Collaborative Fund, so we begin with what he has learned about venture capital in his first year on the job. I got kind of disenchanted with a lot of the investment industry just because it was so heavily focused on markets and not business. And I viewed venture capital as the closest as you could get to the actual businesses and actually the farthest away that you could get from markets. I viewed it as just like the purest form of making an investment in a direct business where you are getting your hands dirty and you are really seeing day to day kind of the daily knife fight that Brent B. Shore talks about of how dirty and ugly and difficult it is to run a business, which is why I got interested in investing in the first place when I was a teenager. It wasn't markets. It wasn't the stock market. It was business that I really liked. And my career kind of gravitated towards markets, as I think a lot of ours has. But I wanted, I, I wanted to get back closer to businesses. And I really thought a year ago, Patrick, that I was going to have to learn a completely new skill. Like I was being so far removed from the markets business that I had spent my career in that I was, just, I, I, I was going into a completely different field. And I think what has shocked me the most over the last year is how wrong that was. If, if you make a Venn diagram with VC on one hand and public markets on the other, the overlap is way larger than I, than I thought it would be. And there are, of course, differences, some, some huge differences between the two. But the overlap has been so much more substantial than I thought. And a lot of the really key drivers of public markets investing transfer not only a little bit, but I would say perfectly into venture investing. And I think no matter the stage or size investment you're making, or no matter the industry, there's some element of change that drives competition. And there's some element of stability that drives compounding. Like that's the kind of like the two elements that make any investment. And VC investors versus public investors just weight those two differently. But it's, it's just a different cut of the same meat. So things around long-term thinking or business moats or compounding or the impact of fees 
or the needs and the desires and the psychology of LPs is really all the same. And, and that's been, I think, encouraging to me because I really felt like I was taking a big leap of faith in the middle of my career to do something totally new. And I realized pretty quickly, but I'm still reminded almost on a daily basis of how we're all doing the same thing. We, we weight variables differently, but we're all doing the same thing. One of the funny things about venture capital is how tiny a sliver of the assets that are being invested it represents relative to the attention that it gets. And I think, of course, that's because of some of the most exciting stories in any given market are are almost always happening at the venture stage because it's where there's the most growth and kind of excitement, I guess you would say. I, I realized when I was thinking about kind of framing today's discussion that Jason and I had actually never talked about early stage or really any sort of private market investment. And obviously a lot of what you've written also is about public markets. So I kind of want to almost, without having a very specific question, just open it up a little bit to you to riff on concerns and I guess pros and cons sort of a private market investing through the same lens of sort of businesses. Of course, these are still markets, right? There's still competitive bids and there's still some price and efficiency. But I'm curious kind of your general take on private markets in general and venture capital specifically. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I was thinking of as Morgan was talking was there's a wonderful remark by Ben Graham that I think he, actually, I think he made it in this speech from 1963 that I have on my website, but I have to double check where I first read this. But he advocated that security analysts, when they are appraising any public company, should make their best estimate of the business value of the enterprise and then how much of the remainder of the stock market value derives from speculation. And it's a suggestion that, to the best of my knowledge, no analyst in the history of Wall Street ever took him up on, but it's an excellent approach that we could all do more I mean, it would be great to see more of that in the public markets. I guess one of the things I've been thinking about quite a bit over the past few months is the extent to which returns vary based on where they are earned. You know, if you think about a lot of people, Michael Mobison most recently, have sort of pointed out that it's almost as if there's three stages of corporate life. There's venture and other early stage angel and other early stage investments. There's the public markets and then there's private equity or buyout funds. So we count on the early stage to give birth to companies, the public markets to nurture them, and then the private equity or buyout market to sort of take them in, fix them, (laughs) and then put them back out again. And As time passes, I'm starting to become skeptical that the returns differ all that much in the aggregate from one of those categories to the other. I'm kind of inclined to think once you adjust for leverage, and particularly when you adjust for risk, the return's probably pretty comparable throughout that life cycle, which is kind of counterintuitive. And I think particularly... People can get sidetracked by sort of the jackpot phenomenon that you can get in venture capital or or in private equity, for that matter, where one buyout deal or one venture deal becomes, you know, Amazon or, or Dell, and people a few people make a ton of money. But I think 
when we properly weight the returns and we take account for the deals that don't survive, the risk that's incurred, and especially with private equity, the leverage that gets layered on, I'm not sure the returns are all that different. I, I, what do you think, Morgan? No, I, I, I think that's, those are fair points. One of the big differences between private markets, whether it's PE or VC, most of the time, in almost all the cases, the investments are being done out of funds that are probably a 10-year fund, maybe more, with effectively no liquidity in the meantime. Now, 10 years is long enough that you're probably going to go through a full market cycle or maybe two. So some of the, the biggest elements that drive public markets investing of the in and out, the reactions to a recession and whatnot, don't cycle into volatility in VC and PE just because the pricing mechanism and the liquidity is just not there. So I, I think it's, it's difficult to, measure, to compare risk apples and apples just because so much of what risk is, or I would say one of, you know, the, main, the main concept of what risk is, is your ability uh, for better or worse to react around the liquidity that you have, to take liquidity or to leave it on the table when you have it. And in private market, markets, oftentimes that decision is made for you. You don't have liquidity even when, even when you want it. And actually, I think that's probably one of the things that I like most that I didn't really think about that much going into it, but I think has been one of the, the most enjoyable aspects of private investing is that it is specifically the lack of liquidity. That so many public investors know that you know, if you can take a longer term view and ride the ups and downs versus trying to time them and get in and get in and out, that you will probably have a better experience over the lifetime of your investor, of your, of your experience as an investor. And in private markets, those, those decisions are made for you. And so we don't have to deal with the, the spooked investors running in and out. It's kind of, it's a 10 year fund and you're in this partnership. And that just makes the job easier, I think, on both sides for us as investors and also the LPs on the other side, that once, once a deal is, is made, it's it's made and you can really there's a big difference between people who think they're long-term investors want to be long-term investors versus how they actually behave in practice carl richards writes for the new york times he talks about this a lot of what if like you set up and he means this tongue-in-cheek not literally but what if you set up so like if you were a public markets investor and you wanted to sell you had a legal document that you could only sell like with your brother's permission you know, he, he's just trying to put, as he explains it, he wants to put a gap between you and stupid. And I think in private markets, that gap is actually like a legal document. There's nothing you can do about it, which has been encouraging. How do you both think about, maybe from both a private and public market standpoint, valuation? So we'll start with you, Morgan. The, and you tell me kind of what the, the going rate is, right, for a standard seed stage or, or even earlier stage, friends and family valuation, and how much that's changed in the recent several years, whether that's something you think about or worry about, and do you see like kind of signs in venture valuations as indicative of any bigger, broader trends? Yeah, I would say two things. The first thing that a lot of people think of when they the topic of venture valuation comes up is the phenomenon of unicorns, the billion dollar or the decabillion dollar startup, which is a, a funny way to, to phrase it. You have companies that are 10 years old and worth $50 billion still being called startups. That I think is almost entirely uh, an impact of an incredible drop in companies going public over the last 20 years. So companies today that in any other world in the past would have been public companies long ago are still private. And that has the effect of completely changing the makeup of the private venture-backed universe of companies. So in past eras, 
companies went public when they were worth 50 or 100 million dollars. Now they go public when they're worth 25 or 30 or 50 billion dollars or more, which makes it look like, oh, you know, venture valuations are so are orders of magnitude higher than they were in the past. And I think it's largely just a difference in timing of when companies go public. The other thing I would say is to the extent that there is tremendously more money in venture capital today than there was in the past. Has that had an impact on valuations in some areas? Yes, undoubtedly. I think a bigger area it has had an impact on is the supply of startups. And it's not necessarily that the valuation of startups that would be around in in any era is being pushed up. But the number of companies that are trying to raise money, some of them successfully, is substantially higher than it it had been in the past. And the number of cold pitches, I would say, that come across our radar, hit our our inboxes, that you can tell a little effort has been put into it, let's say is substantially higher. And and to those companies, you know, why they're doing it is that there are funds out there who will fund them. So I think the biggest challenge for a private market today is not necessarily navigating around higher valuations, although that is an element. I don't want to poo-poo that. A bigger challenge, I think, is creating a deeper and more specific filter to navigate around the, the number of companies that, that might come across your radar and just being more selective about it. It's almost, I think in the 1990s, it was, it was the same thing for public market investors, that so many companies were going public that, yes, were there increased valuations? Well, especially in the late 90s, yes. But let's say in the, in the mid-1990s, yes, there were increased valuations. But what, what there is a tremendous amount of were just floods of companies going public. And it was incumbent on a public market investor to create a deeper filter at that point to get to the bottom of what was worth investing in. Jason, as you're thinking about public markets, how much time do you spend thinking about individual businesses and companies? I've been thinking a ton about this as sort of the age of the default, where there seems to be a company, usually a tech company really at its, in its DNA, that has colonized key parts of our attention and our lives and serves as the default for how we do kind of the major activities. So these are the obvious ones. It's Amazon. It's maybe in investing, it's becoming Vanguard. Uh, we could talk about, obviously, that's a good thing for a lot of reasons, but I'm curious what you guys think about just there's a scale problem, right? It's, it's, at some point, maybe it's Uber, maybe it's Netflix. It seems as though the little bits of our attention and our day and key functionalities are being sucked up by just one player, which is interesting, but obviously there's always competition. There's always creative destruction. So I'm curious how much you think about, and these companies tend to be exorbitantly expensive through traditional Ben Graham, you know, price to earnings, price to book ratios, et cetera. Some of them have never really made any money. Amazon's a great example. So how much do you think about that when you think about public markets, knowing full well, of course, that, that, that you're an advocate of a fairly passive approach to markets. But, but what do you think about individual companies like that? I guess the first is that I am a big believer that there is an, I hate the term new, but I think maybe it does apply here. There is a new business model that has emerged in the past, let's say, 20 to 25 years. James Anderson, who's one of my favorite active stock pickers at Bailey Gifford in Edinburgh, Scotland, calls this the West Coast model. And what he has in mind is CEOs and companies exemplified by Jeff Bezos and Amazon, people who essentially don't really care about pleasing Wall Street, making quarterly earnings, who have at least a 10-year planning horizon, and are willing to ignore sort of all short-term interim obstacles along the way. 
and will sacrifice any number of conventional short-term goals to meet the long-term goal that they see out on the horizon. And uh, Zuckerberg at Facebook, there's, I mean, there's, there's any number of companies like that we could name. And they're not all in the U.S. Alibaba maybe is another example. Some people might say Rocket in Germany. There's a fair number of companies like this. And they won't all succeed. A lot of them will fail. It's no easier to predict the long term than it is to predict the short term. But it's more rewarding, both for the business and for its investors. So I think that's a very healthy thing. If you think about it, it's very much an analog to corporations in the 19th century when you had sort of great builders like Andrew Carnegie, I'll name a couple of controversial names, John D. Rockefeller, maybe even J.P. Morgan, people who today are both admired and reviled for ruthless business practices, but there's no disputing that they had a long-term vision for their company, for the business, and for the economy, and were able to, to realize it. So I think that's the first thing, is that as a society and as investors, we haven't really come to terms with the best ways to identify businesses that are using that kind of model and effective ways of trying to predict who the winners will be. The second point I would make, circling around to, your, to the passive part of your question, is there are obvious implications in the move toward indexation among investors. And and one of the most obvious and frankly the most troubling is that to the extent that passive investing works, and it does work very well over time, I don't think there's, there's any disputing that at this point, but it, it is a kind of abrogation of the investor's responsibility. Is that appropriate for many people? Absolutely. Is it appropriate for most people? I think yes. Is it appropriate for everyone? Is it healthy if everyone does it? No. If the entire U.S. stock market ultimately is indexed, that's not going to be a good thing. It won't happen. Can't. Can't happen. It can't happen because active investors won't let it happen because it's too lucrative not to let it happen. The arbitrage opportunities become enormous as indexing takes a larger and larger share of the total stock market. But when we become a nation of people who are simply letting it ride or who believe they're letting it ride, that's when I think we get into danger because as Morgan pointed out, you know, at the top of the, our conversation here, the real distinction is between people who are long-term investors and people who just think they are. And in my dictionary in the Devil's Financial Dictionary, I when I define risk, I say, in the end, risk is the gap between what investors think they know and what they end up learning about their investments, about the financial markets, and about themselves. And the real danger, I think, is not that people are doing the right thing, which I would argue indexing is, but that they're doing the right thing for the wrong reason. And if somebody is buying an index fund as just the latest form of performance chasing, and I think that applies for tons of financial advisors out there who are just buying the next hot dot, and it just happens to be an index fund, 
those people and their clients are going to end up really, really sorry in the end. I'm going to go a totally different direction on both of you because we are, I think, all investors kind of at our root or that's that's kind of how we came up. Imagining for, for a minute instead that we are entrepreneurs. And I'm thinking of this question really because of, of your experience in the past year, Morgan, working with so many entrepreneurs. If I told you you had to leave your current day jobs and go start a business now, given all of these things that, that we've talked about, this, these ideas of complacency, of behemoths that are you know gathering our attention share, et cetera, and you wanted, one, to enjoy yourselves, but two, be successful, how would you attack that problem? What kind of business do you think you'd start? Well, that's a great question. I think my, what my answer would be, I'm, and this might, this might be interesting coming from someone who works in venture capital, I don't think I have the disposition to be a startup. The amount of, I'll put it this way, there was, a, there was a pretty fierce debate on Twitter a couple months ago from an analyst who works at a VC shop who was pushing back against the idea that if you work in tech, you have to work 100 hours a week. He was pushing back against that. He said, no, look, it's much better to have a work-life balance. You're just going to be more sustainable. You'll be able to actually maintain your job, yada, yada. And two pretty prominent VCs pushed back on that and said, no, if you want to work in tech, work at a startup, you need to, it needs to be 110% commitment. I think the the disparity, and I I agreed with both sides. There was, and I'll tell you why, if you want to be an Elon Musk character, if you want to be the founder of a startup that's going to be massive, you need to put in, uh, you need to work 100 hours a week for years or maybe decades on end. There's no other way around it. There are are no part-time founder jobs. If that's the route you want to go, that's the kind of disposition and commitment that you need. And a vanishingly small sliver of society, I think, actually has that. A lot of people think they do, or I'd say a lot of people can maintain it for a a limited period of time. But the number of people with the endurance to put in what it takes to be a a successful, not not only founder, uh, not not only startup CEO, but CEO of any size company, the amount of commitment that it takes is is a dedication that is is not very common among people. And and, and to bring it back, I I don't think it is what I have in me, or it's it's not an endurance thing, but I think how I like to structure my day around learning and thinking is not the kind of mentality or disposition you need to be a CEO, which is spending your day executing. So a key clarifying question, which will, before we get to Jason's answer, and I want to hear both, both of your opinion on this one is when you say work a hundred hours or, you know, whatever the crazy stat is, it implies that other time is being spent on things not defined as work, whether that's rest, sleep, or pleasure. Probably those are the other three categories. So how do you define work? Like I know you very well. I know that for you, reading a really interesting book is not work, but in some sense, it is work. So, right. no, you know, for you know, for for writing, which all three of us do, all three of us at this table are involved in in writing and and financial content. Not only part of the job, but I think the majority of that job for all three of us is reading and learning. So, if any of the three of us on a Saturday morning are reading a history book. That's not even related to investing at all. Maybe it's a biology book. Jason talks about this a lot, multidisciplinary learning. Is that enjoyable for all three of us? Yes. All, we're, all three of us are nodding our heads. Is that also directly related to the work we're doing? Of course. The distinction I would make to bring this back to the original comment is you know, to be an effective CEO, do you have to have that, that natural curiosity and read about different topics? Yes, absolutely. But you, the huge majority of your day is going to be taken up by actually executing the business at hand. Whereas I think the, the curiosity that the three of us have, I think a lot of, particularly at the startup levels, there's just not enough hours in the day to be able to do that because you're dealing with hands-on things of signing contracts, dealing with 
employment issues. There's so many different, I'll bring it back to what Brent B. Shore calls it, the daily knife fight. I think Brent described it. I love this description of you roll out of bed in the morning, you grab your knife, you fight off the business demons all day, and then you get back into bed and you do it all again the next day. So there's, there's not a lot of time for, I think, unstructured learning in that environment. How, how do you parse that idea, Jason, of, of work versus pleasure versus rest? And well, first of all, do you even agree with that as the framework for right, So we're letting Morgan completely off the hook here. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back to him. <laughs> all right. Well, I, you know, I think as Morgan said, we have a bit of luxury here, the three of us in this conversation, because of course, what he said is absolutely true, which is sort of everything we do is both work and play. And I don't think that's true for a lot of CEOs. I don't think that's true for people who are starting new businesses. Um, There's this uh, wonderful line, I forget who said it about him, but the great 17th century philosopher Spinoza was, somebody called him the God-intoxicated man. And if you're running a startup, you are, you are the business intoxicated person. You see the entire world through the lens of what you're trying to build. Everything is an opportunity or an obstacle or a hurdle to be leapt over. Whereas, you know, for, for somebody like me, a lot of my spare time is you know, I spent sort of looking out the window, reading books that don't seem to have much of anything to do with anything, browsing some academic journal, talking to people I meet who aren't even in the business world. And I'm waiting for sort of Brownian motion particles to collide that will give me an idea for something different to say about the same old themes that I've been banging the drum on for 30 years. So it's a different way of looking at the world, I think. If you had to start a business, what would you do? A few days ago, I I tweeted this, what I thought was a very fun and hopeful observation from the Pritzker brothers, the great business builders in Chicago. And they did uh, an interview with, at the Booth School of Business, I think, and they were asked, what, what's the one thing you look for? Or what's the one question you ask when you're thinking about investing in a business? And as I recall, the answer was, what pain, P-A-I-N, what pain are you trying to heal? And how much does it hurt? And I think that's a great question to ask anybody who's starting a business. And I mean, in my case, mine, mine is, it, it's, I don't think you'd describe it as a pain. It's more like a itch. <laughs> and it's probably only my itch. I, don't, I, I may be the only person in the world who is bothered by the fact that when I'm looking for a Renaissance painting or a medieval manuscript or a, uh, a Japanese print, I can't immediately search online and get exactly the image I want returned to me with information about whether it's in the public domain. So if I were to launch a business, I would launch uh, some kind of sort of comprehensive archive of the world's greatest works of art in all media from all cultures that was intuitively searchable because even like Google Art Project, I don't find very satisfying. And uh, there are developing alternatives, but 
none of them quite grab me, but I'm never going to do that. It's just what I would do. You asked a hypothetical question. I, I talked about the age of the default. It also seems to be the age of the niche where you can thrive in fairly small little corners of the world. And if anything, that can be a large competitive advantage because the scaled up competitors that have the, the scale and the cost of capital like an Amazon, it's not worth their while to compete in some of these little tiny niches. So I'm not going to let Morgan off the hook. We, we're going to need an answer from you yeah. on if you had to start a business, what would it look like? Yeah, I think what's been really encouraging in the, in the investing industry is that over the last decade, let's say, the access to investment planning has really been democratized. The access to good investment planning through, let's say, Betterment and Wealthfront, that has been a, a really encouraging move in the right direction. The access to financial planning hasn't. And by and large, if you want a financial plan today, you have to do it in the same way that you got investment advice 10 or 20 years ago, which is you book an appointment with the guy down the street, you have to go pay him a couple hundred dollars, you go in, sit across the desk from him in his office, he asks you about your weekend and your family vacation. And it's, there's a lot of good advice out there, but it hasn't been distributed yet in a way, in a really efficient, scalable way that investment advice has. So I think there's, there's a big opportunity there. And I think a lot of the reason that it hasn't really picked up to the extent that I, I wish it would is that investment planning for a lot of people is exciting. Uh, let's go talk about my investments. Planning your will, planning your estate, thinking about college education funding 10 or 20 years in the future is not, it's easier to put off for people. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's why it, it hasn't gained the popularity both from uh, it hasn't gained the demand from consumers or the popularity among among entrepreneurs, but I, I see a pretty big opportunity there with increasing importance and and just something that hasn't really gained much scale or hasn't really changed much in decades. Yeah, but I guess I would I would jump on top and say that if you're going to do that, Morgan, you better do it soon <laughs> because there are to the industry's credit, there are some good people working on this. It is so long overdue. It is decades overdue. And it's outrageous that the financial advice industry has trained the public to pay 1% a year for the investment management aspect of financial planning, which is essentially trivial and which financial planners are not very good at anyway, but at the same time has trained the public to believe that the financial planning aspects of that relationship, which are really important and can make a vastly bigger difference in their future wealth than portfolio management, should be free. It's bonkers. I mean, you go to the typical investment advisor in this country and you'll pay 1% a year to have your portfolio managed and the other aspects of financial planning are free. It's nonsense. And it's a crazy business model that developed, it's sort of, uh, sort of the, uh, developed by backwardation almost and the fee structure is nonsensical and people are overpaying for a commodity product that underperforms, and they're underpaying for a very useful service that uh, is in, in, makes a massive difference to their future wealth. Makes me think about the role of stress in a couple different ways. So 
you mentioned this idea of a great way to find a good business, the Pritzker brothers. It was also in this book, Modern Monopolies, which I'm a big preacher of the value of this book. I think it's so interesting. It talks about what you called the West Coast business model. They call it the platform business model. Uber is the, you know, the, the quintessential example. And, and the simplest way is to say X, you know, fill in the blank, no longer a pain in the ass. And another way of saying this for financial planning is it's something that is kind of annoying, a little stressful, not exciting. So if there are interesting ways to maybe make it easier or make something difficult easier, that's also a great kind of approach to business. But I almost want to think about stress in the other direction. So it's a great approach because you're solving someone's problem, making things easier or less stressful for them. But I'm curious how you both think about the role of stress in your own development and in business development. So one of the things that I think about all the time is trying to monitor myself for complacency back to this idea of complacency. And yeah, like we all love to sit around and read and write and think and coalesce and let the subconscious marinate. But I also find that if I'm not say reading a very challenging, frankly, stressful book, with ideas that are a little bit beyond my ability to understand, then I get in this rut and nothing kind of new that subconscious merited doesn't produce anything interesting. So how do you both think about keeping the right level of, I guess, intellectual, maybe even physical stress in your life? And how do you think about the value of stress as it relates to growth and well-being? I think there, there are two things that pop in mind for me. One will be familiar in the investing context, which is margin of safety, room for error, which I'm sure all of your listeners will be familiar with in investing context. But I think that's a, that's a philosophy that scales to a lot of areas in life, whether it is health or your career or your friendships and relationships. Giving yourself room for error is just an acknowledgement that our ability to predict what's going to happen next, and again, I mean this well beyond investing context, is beyond our ability of what we think it is. And I think the best response to areas that are hard to predict is not to try to come up with better formulas of prediction or try to create new analytics for for predicting what's going to happen next, but to give ourselves room for error. There's a great quote from Daniel Kahneman who says, when I'm I'm butchering this, we can can post it at the end of the podcast. The the quote is, is, is along the lines of, when you come across a surprise, the correct takeaway is that the world is surprising which seems obvious, but when so many people come across surprises, their takeaway is, okay, how can I learn from this surprise to predict, to, to make sure, to learn from it, to make sure that I can predict that it doesn't happen again, whereas the, your takeaway should be that the, that the world is surprising, which gets back to the quote that you mentioned earlier of history being, you know, the study of unprecedented events used to predict the future. So I, I, I use the concept of room for error in a lot of areas of my life as a stress management tool to, rather than trying to to not only try to predict the future, but set up my life in a way that that I, I have to be right about things. I'd much rather give myself room for error in a lot of aspects of life. The other element that came to mind when you asked the question is in some ways the opposite of that, which is cutting my losses short, particularly around reading, as you said. I think this is something that Jason and Patrick, you would agree with this too. This is a Munger quote. I don't burden myself with bad books. And I, I cut, I have no problem reading five pages of a book and saying, not interested, I'm out of here. And I think a lot of readers don't do that. And I think a lot of people learn early in life a really bad habit, which is I should plug away at this book until the end. And that's a lot of reason why they don't like reading is because they're burdened with bad books. And I think if you develop the habit of very quickly cutting your losses uh, for something like not just in reading, but in let's say friendships, relationships, jobs, rather than trugging through something 
something that is clearly not working for you or not scratching your itch. I think cutting your losses pretty quickly is, is a good philosophy that spans a lot of areas of life. Yeah, I mean, I would just add to that and I would say that the various forms of sunk costs are a huge burden on people. I mean, just following on what Morgan said, I mean, I don't know, a few weeks ago, I on Twitter, I, I don't know who started this, but I said something like, if I don't like a book, I just stop immediately. I mean, I've stopped reading books after five sentences. If it's bad, it's bad. And I'm a huge reader of, you know, 19th century English and French and Russian fiction. If there's one writer I will not read, Henry James. I can't stand Henry James. I will not read Henry James. And all my literary friends tell me how great Henry James is. I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm done. I tried him five different ways, and I'm done. And the same attitude, I think, can be helpful in a lot of aspects of life. And I think one of the difficulties, though, is that the most important decisions in life tend to be the ones we can't practice. So think about, I mean, I'll throw three out there. So marriage, 401k, and buying a house. I mean, those are not decisions people make dozens of times in a lifetime. Hopefully. At least not most people. <laughs> Even people in Hollywood don't get married dozens of times. So you get married, most people get married once or twice. Some get married three times. That's a very small sample set. It's no wonder the error rate is so high. I mean, it's, depending on whom you ask, it's 50% to two-thirds. There's a lot of regret built into that system. People change jobs, what, four to seven times in a lifetime. So they get the job wrong a lot of the time. They make the 401k decision wrong a lot of the time. And they buy a house in the wrong place because they're not practiced at it. So... I mean, the advantage of stress is that when we have practice in a task, stress is a signal that our pattern recognition system is generating that something's wrong. You're not going to get that stress signal in a decision that you don't make repeatedly over the course of a lifetime. So, you know, people's own intuitions tend to be a very poor guide to decisions they don't get a lot of feedback on. You need that structured feedback if you're going to improve the quality. I think there's there's some part of stress too that, and this is why the, the topic of stress is so difficult for so many people, is that long-term thinking is the ability to put up with bullshit. That's really what long-term thinking is, the ability to endure volatility, the ability to endure discomfort. Cutting your losses short is having no tolerance for bullshit. And I think you need both of those to be able to uh, handle risk over time. And though it's almost like a, a barbell strategy to it. And those two things are conflicting, but you have to be able to accurately navigate both ends of that spectrum. And that's really difficult for a lot of people, when to cut your losses short and when to take a longer term view and endure discomfort. Are there markers of that? So looking back on, on both careers, I'm always fascinated by this question of when is it smart to cut losses and, and move on? So I love like the start applying the startup iterative model to reading, like you should fail fast as a reader. I'm a huge believer in that because then you're going to get more shots at finding a great book, right? That could be really life-changing or incredibly enjoyable. But there's this kind of long, often long slog in the middle of what turns out to be a very successful endeavor. Uh, we talked about the process of writing a book, maybe not this one, but some of your other books, that there's this kind of long middle that can 
be just brutal. And I think we'd all agree we'd call it work and often very stressful work. Or agony. Or agony. <laughs> and you think about things that in retrospect were incredibly enjoyable periods or successful periods or you know, some of the accomplishments that you look back on with pride. Were there markers of you know, why you should have kept slogging versus cut the losses short? Can you think of anything like that? Yeah, well, I think there's a key difference between waking up in the morning and saying this is going to be so incredibly difficult but I still love what I'm doing versus waking up in the morning and saying, why am I doing this? Those are distinctly different, but they are very easy to conflate. I think in real time, it's very difficult for most people to tell the difference between those two. And that's what causes a lot of, let's say, bad marriages, bad careers, bad investments. It's an incredibly difficult thing to separate. And I wish there was an easy answer for it, but I, I, I don't think there is. And, you know, yeah, I, I've had, I've had, a lot of times in my career where I've woken up and saying, God, the, what I have in front of me today looks miserable and I don't want to do any of it, but I still love what I was doing. I still loved the act of writing, the act of learning, the act of investing, the study of business. I still love all of that, even when it's incredibly difficult. And, and other areas in my life, and in, in, let's say different careers when I was, was still in college, had some internships where I woke up and said, I don't want anything to do. I don't like any element of that at all. And luckily, I think it was, pre, it was pretty black and white for me, but I think a lot of times it's not. It's some shade of gray, and that's where you get really difficult decisions. Yeah, I mean, one, one thing that I advise my younger colleagues at the Wall Street Journal is, I, I mean, I do have this expression that I don't think I got from anybody else in journalism. I say, listen to your fear. As you guys know, you know, my column goes up online every Friday. It runs in the weekend print edition of the Wall Street Journal. And by Wednesday, I need to know what I'm doing for, for the end of the week. And there have been Friday mornings where I said, why are my palms sweating? Why have I been to the bathroom twice in the last hour? Something's wrong. And a couple times I ignored that feeling. And that's when I made mistakes. That's when, at the very least, I looked back later and said, that was really not a, not a good thing to persist in. You have to listen to your fear. I mean, you're, there are moments when your body will tell you something's wrong. If you're sitting there and your face is all, like, screwed up and your forehead is wrinkled and you're frowning and you can't concentrate and you feel as if you're trying to lift much too heavy an object in way too short a time, then you probably should stop what you're doing and start all over again from a clean slate. And in journalism, especially in deadline journalism, that is a very unpleasant experience, but it, it was way better than the alternative of just putting garbage out there and, and then having to face the consequences. I mean, when I was working with Danny Kahneman on... Uh, thinking fast and slow, there was one chapter where I sort of felt at the end of the day, literally the day, the calendar day, that we had done really good work. And one of us went to sleep, that was me. And Danny stayed up all night. And when I woke up the next morning, I had just this stream of emails from him that he sent out between like 2.30 in the morning and 5.30 in the morning. And this was all, we were in the same time zone. And the emails started out with a subject line like, are we sure about this? And then it progressed to, I don't think I like this, to this has to be wrong, 
to by the end it was something like disaster <laughs> or catastrophe. <laughs> and then at 8.30 in the morning my phone rang and it was him and he said, I think I figured it out. And a little later in the day he sent me this revised draft and it was completely transformed. There was nothing in it from what we had done the previous day. And as somebody who'd been a professional writer for almost 30 years at that point, I was flabbergasted. And I said to him, Danny, how did you do that? And he said, I have no sunk costs. And I've never forgotten that. And to this day, when I'm writing something and it doesn't work, once I come to the conclusion that it doesn't work, I don't fix it. I don't tweak it. I just blow it up. And I just start from an empty screen, no words, no nothing. I don't look back at what I did before. I just start it over. And I think that's a really useful discipline for people in any walk of life. Reminds me of the old Turkish proverb, which is something like, no matter how far you've gone down the wrong path, turn back. <laughs> <laughs> Phil Knight, who, who founded Nike, he, he writes in his biography that came out last year, he writes about the difference between giving up and quitting. And he says, you should give up all the time, but you should never quit. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, a simple way mm -hmm. to, yeah. to phrase it. And he talks about how he did that at Nike, this constantly giving up on things that weren't working, but he never quit the overall mission of pushing the company forward. If you had to sum up maybe a couple of those principles for kind of how you approach learning the world, business, life, what would those be for you? Well, I think it's a great topic because I think the most powerful concepts are those that span multiple disciplines. If you can find philosophies or behaviors that are just as true in physics as they are in medicine, you know, to span multiple, multiple different disciplines, that's where you really get something that is, is really powerful. So some of those, for me, uh, this, this, this will be, you know, I've, I've, I've written and talked about this so ad nauseum, but for, for me, it's really the basis of how I think about not just investing, but life, which is long-term thinking. This will come to no surprise to you or anyone at this table. But I think in investing in particular, it is probably the last area of edge, in investing, that most of the edges that existed, let's say 50 or 70 or 100 in previous eras of investing, where you could find edge from intelligence, from your ability to calculate, your ability to analyze, most of those have been arbitraged away. They've just been competed into the ground. So most analytical edges, even though they're still there, there still are analytical edges, but they are decreasing. But I think edges that you can find in behavior, particularly around patients and long-term thinking, are both still deep and valid edges, and I think they are significantly more difficult to, or, or almost by definition impossible to arbitrage over time. So I think if you are an investor today, I think this is a good framework, particularly if you are a new investor coming into the world, but also if you're a professional investor. And you're looking for a way for, you know, a philosophy for how to invest or what is your edge in investing. I would think what I advise people is to not think about an edge of how you can be smarter than other people, but what can you do that other people aren't willing to do? Because there are a tremendous number of smart people, brilliant people in this industry. And increasingly, it's not even smart people. It's just fast computers that are going to calculate and analyze better and faster than you can. But if your edge is in behavior and patience, that is something that I think you can carry with you that is stable in time. So that to me is a philosophy to bring this back that I see across multiple disciplines, multiple fields, whether it is business or investing or relationships with your friends or your spouse. And it gets back to, too, what we were saying in the past. It's the ability to endure discomfort. 
I think if you can make that a central part of how you go about your life, you have an edge over most of the competition that is not only valid today, but will probably be stable in time, meaning it's, it's incredibly difficult for that edge to be whittled down over time. Yeah, and I mean, I think there's, a, there's a, maybe a second element to what Morgan was just saying, which is, I'm not positive about this. I'd have to think harder about it. But it seems to me that there's also... I think that varies inversely with scale. I think the smaller you are as a person or an organization, I think the easier it is to take advantage of that time arbitrage. It's a lot easier for, for any of us sitting around this table as individuals to you know, invest in a particular asset with a 10 or 20 or 30 year horizon than it would be for our firms to do it or for mutual funds that we invest in to do it or for most hedge funds or any other form of professional investment to do it. I guess the other point that I would make, just getting back to your original question, Patrick, is I think sort of the touchstone I use is people say to me, you know, did you have a good week? I answer that always by saying, yes, I learned something, or no, I didn't really learn anything this week. (laughs) And if I were to define a great week, it would be not only did I learn something, but I learned that something I thought I knew was wrong. That is a really good week. So if you unlearn something? Yeah, if I, well, or... Or another way of putting it, we're saying the same thing, is did somebody disprove some belief of mine? That's a thrill. And I, you know, as I look at society today, particularly American society, although it seems to be spreading like a contagion, I mean, I, I, if I had to boil down what's what, the disturbing trend in society today, it's that people are getting to the point where they can't stand being confronted with the possibility that they might be wrong about something. And I think to live a a satisfying and rewarding life, you had better be able to embrace the idea that the only way you can get better is by learning that you're wrong about things. And in this country today, if you tell anybody that they're wrong about something, you know, you might get hit over the head with a two-by-four. And that's just, that's just stupid. Well, I think what's difficult about that problem, too, is that the Internet, and in particularly social media, uh, more than any other medium in human history, exposes you to different opinions and different beliefs than anything else, which for a lot of people, maybe most people on social media, leads to anger and further polarization. Yeah, it does and, the opposite of what it should be, though. Right, and there's, I think there's, a, there's still another aspect to it, though, which is that media like Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, you know, any number of other social media we could name, people seem to want to present... I mean, there's something about the me, me, me aspect of it that makes those media tailor-made for telling everybody how great you are, how smart you are. And no, I don't have one particular person in mind. Stop that, Patrick. Um, I'm thinking of everybody, not just one person. And I think that's really unwholesome because it it leads to a 
first of all, it leads the individual to constantly reinforce that message about himself or herself. But secondly, it creates a competitive environment in which, not that Morgan would ever do this, but in which Morgan says, you know, look at me, I'm Morgan, look how great I am. And then here's Jason over here, he's saying, well, Morgan is saying how great he is. Now I have to be greater than Morgan. And then Patrick has to one-up me. And, and it just goes around in a circle. And it's like a bunch of college sophomores in a dorm, drunk at night, all trying to outdo each other. I, I can't agree with that more. See, you're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> one, of my, one of my favorite, Morgan wrote about sources of edge. And it's interesting whether or not you should think about it as edge. But one of my favorites is Paul Graham's notion of keeping your identity small that most of these problems that, that you're talking about, Jason, arise because we create for ourselves some identity, which has a certain number of features. I identify as Republican or as, you know, whatever, whatever it is. And we defend that territory viciously and are unwilling to really change once something is seated in our identity. And so Paul Graham's notion, which I, I think about constantly, is keep your identity as small as humanly possible. So you want to be Teflon. You want stuff to just bounce off of you and really hold, hold beliefs very loosely and be willing to change your this mind. This is hugely important, and you really see it in the political arena, but that's an analog for all walks of life investing and everything else. There's a, a great psychologist at Yale named Paul Kahan who has developed this idea that he calls identity protective cognition, which is a terrible name for what you <laughs> not just Not a marketing did. guy. <laughs> yeah, not a market. He's not in the marketing department so far as I know. It's an awful name for what you just described, Patrick, which is if you're a Democrat, then you judge ideas not based on whether they're valid or what the evidence supporting them is, but rather are they ideas that the Democratic Party, as it's presently constituted, agrees with. And if you're a Republican, you do the exact same thing. And that just makes no sense. And people do the same thing in investing. There are schools of thought. Um, if you're a value person, then anybody with a growth orientation is... is completely wrong. If you believe in smart beta, then anybody who doesn't is, is a fool. If you believe in passive management, anybody who buys an actively managed fund is a dope. I could go on and on and on. And if you're not judging the validity of ideas by long-term, objective, ideally peer-reviewed evidence, then you're just protecting your own identity. And that's that's foolish. I think it's true in sports, too, where most, most sports fans, I think ironically, are not really interested in athleticism. They're not interested in a great play. They're interested in, did my team win? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's almost completely removed from what it should be, which is being impressed with athleticism. In the spirit of keeping our identity small, maybe you could both give an example of the last significant thing that you changed your mind about. So it's been about a year since we, we formally had a conversation like this, both of us. Um, but maybe in the last year, is there any big thing that either your view significantly evolved or changed entirely? You know, not necessarily in the last year, but if I look at kind of the, the span of my investing career, which is not terribly long, but more than a decade now, I definitely embraced, and, and this, is, this is specifically on, on the passive side, which is much more competitive. I, I really was a, a pretty diehard stock picker 
definitely 10 years ago, but I would even say five years ago. And I, I would say for many reasons, I, I've come around to be almost as passionate and as believing on the other side of passive investing at, at the public stage. And that was a difficult transition to make. And there were, there were years where I, I, you know, parts of my brain believed it, but I kind of pushed back against it because I had just, I had so much of my learning and how I, I was kind of brought up as an investor was towards the active side. So there, there were several years of dissonance that was really uncomfortable before I kind of made the leap towards the passive side. So now I'm at a point, I wrote about this recently, my entire investment portfolio on the public side is Vanguard Total Stock Market Index in Berkshire. And that's it. What about private markets breaches that confidence? So as a passive investor in the public markets, you are now effectively part of an engine that is a stock picker in the private markets. So what is different? Why one way in public and really the opposite in private markets? Yeah. So it's an obvious question. And uh, there are two things. One is private markets, particularly, I would say, this is less true if you're, if you're looking at large PE buyouts, but the lower on the scale that you get down to the startup universe, it is substantially less efficient than it would be at, at any other stage. I would kind of, I would make the analogy that the VC world is probably as efficient as the public stock market was in the, in the 1950s. 1960s, maybe. So pretty efficient, but not, I mean, just massively less efficient than public markets are today. That's one. Two, I would say, and this is a point that I think gets lost when people look at the VC's universe. You were saying earlier, it's a, it's a small sliver of capital, but gets a disproportionate amount of attention. And it gets a lot of attention when there is a, sort of a high profile blow up. But, you know, we at, at the Collaborative Fund, we own, I think, 140 companies. So is that active? Yes, it is active because we selected each and every one of those. But it is the philosophies around broad diversification that make passive work, I think, can also transfer over to other segments of the investing world. So it's those two things combined. It's the combination of significantly less efficient market on one hand and also bringing in a lot of the elements that make passive investing work uh, onto the other to, to bring that into the fold as well. And also, I would say, we touched on this earlier, there is so much less liquidity in private markets that it kind of forces you to become a long-term thinker, which is the other element of what makes passive work. So there actually are quite a bit of elements of passive that have worked their way into to private markets. And this gets back to what I started the conversation with, that is the, the center of the Venn diagram is wider than I thought it would be. So Morgan, I, I have a follow-up question, which is, have you thought at Collaborative Fund about setting up an experimental passive portfolio? Because I know there are some VCs that have talked about using algorithms to... Yeah, and there are some that actually uh, have done that. There's one firm called Correlation Ventures that is really fascinating that takes almost an entirely data-centric analytic approach to VC and is effectively a VC fund that operates, like as most people would think, a factor fund. And it's a really fascinating approach. We're not there yet. Will we do that? I, I, I don't think so. It's just not kind of how we're set up. It's not where we think we can, you know, what we're interested in or where we see a lot of the, the industries that we get excited about moving. But I think that approach to private market investors is, is absolutely valid. So, and I'm fascinated that people so doing let it. So let me interrupt you for a second, which is why not alongside what you're doing with active company selection? Why not run alongside it a dummy portfolio that just consists of all the companies that make presentations to you weighted by some metric and just compare 
the live portfolio against this model portfolio and see what, which does better over time and what you can learn from it? It's a totally valid question. And I would, the, the answer that might seem disappointing to some, but it really is the most practical answer is the fees that would need to be involved in terms of the legal fees for setting up a tiny slice of a deal that you do almost no diligence on and to invest in 200 or 500 or 1,000 companies would be totally impractical. But why not do it as a paper hypothetical portfolio? I suppose you you could do that. The, the, why it wouldn't work in the practical world is that if you weren't actually an, an investor in these companies, you wouldn't get pricing information on them over time. So it would be really tough to track that portfolio. But I, I, I don't agree with, or I, I would say I don't disagree with the idea in, in theory. I think it is absolutely a smart thing to do in theory. And the firms that are doing it or something similar to it, like Correlation Ventures, I think are fascinating. I think because of the inefficiencies of the markets and the costs that would take, the costs and the, and the, the difficulties of tracking something like that over time are why it hasn't been done yet. I would say, though, that private markets, as they grow larger, are becoming slightly more efficient and costs that involved in it are coming down. And as time goes on, not this year or next year, but I can totally see a world in 10 years or 15 years where private markets where the, the gap between private markets and public markets starts closing and they become kind of one in the same. And that's when I think those experiments will start working. And I think, Jason, the, one of the reason that the index fund didn't really become a big thing until later in the, the investing courses for similar reasons. The cost of constructing and tracking and, and, and distributing a product like that wasn't, wasn't feasible in the 1910s or the 1920s or the 1930s. It took until the 70s, 80s, and 90s yeah, for it to work. Yeah, and in, in, Van, in Vanguard's first five or so years of operation, the index 500 fund was quite expensive, and it also had a very bad tracking error problem mm-hmm. early on that, that hurt. There's an interesting issue here. We actually explored it in the podcast that came out today with Rishi Ganti, which is about how refined an asset is. And obviously, to get to be a publicly listed stock, you're effectively the most refined asset in the world, right? There's, there's all sorts of requirements, um, which obviously makes sense. Um, but by getting public, you sort of have passed the necessary filters to be in the Vanguard total market stock fund. Um, whereas at the stage that you're investing, you're dealing with incredibly unrefined assets. Um, sometimes it's merely an idea and a group of people. And I, I think that it will be interesting to watch from a technology perspective and a legal perspective, how far down market we can get with the passive or even low cost approach and what that will do for business dynamics. Like one of the interesting dynamics now is low interest rate low interest rates have created this wash of capital, the supply of capital into riskier things. And so there's tons of venture funding that's happening. Imagine if there was some passive vehicle that effectively, if you met some minimum requirements, and I don't know what those would look like, but they would be lower than the standards for being public. Imagine if all you had to do was apply to Vanguard Total Private Market Fund, and you've checked seven boxes and you get your check. There are some elements of that. There's a company called Circle Up that we're investing mm-hmm. in that effectively does that, where you mm-hmm. can buy baskets of startups. Yeah. It's a it's an awesome idea and it's it's utilizing technology that has been around in public markets for a long time but has still been largely devoid in private markets. So again, I think that gap between public and private is closing pretty quickly and it's going to be exciting when it when it gets even more closed. A, a great diversion, but I want to get back to to Jason to to hear if there's any major thing that you've changed your mind about recently. Oh yeah, we were talking about that, weren't we? <laughs> um Well, yeah. In fact, just very recently, I had written a column, I don't know, I guess it was about a month ago, 
about uh, the decline in the number of public companies in the U.S. Uh, 20 years ago, according to the Center for Research and Securities Prices at the University of Chicago, I think there were 7,500 public companies, more or less. That would have been in late 1997, and today there's 3,600. So half of all the companies in the public set have disappeared. And the bulk of those um, have been on the small end, particularly micro-cap stocks that, whose numbers have fallen by more than half. And I was uh, kind of alarmed by this when I, when I delved into it. And I, I ordered up some, you know, some detailed data from CRISP, and, and they were great. They worked extensively with me on that. And I was very concerned. I mean, I saw in it one element to help explain why active management has so badly underperformed index funds over the past 10 or 15 years, which is if at the small end there are fewer companies to choose from, then active managers who normally would be fishing in that pool now have to compete for a lot fewer fish, making that end of the market a lot more efficient and making it a lot harder for them to get edge in the very place where edge could pay off the most. And so I was kind of pleased with that argument. And then a bunch of people got in touch with me and told me I was wrong. So I went back and looked at it, and I quickly realized that I don't want to say that what I had written in the first place was nonsense, but I don't think it made a lot of sense. And I had made a sort of elementary math error that's kind of embarrassing, which is that if thousands of companies disappear, but they're all so small that you know combined they have the market value of bodega on the corner – it probably doesn't matter that much to the markets as a whole. And I, I, I would say I, it's embarrassing. I should have thought that through more clearly, and I didn't. And I, I made sort of a basic, I fell prey to a really basic cognitive bias, which is I saw a big number in the thousands, and I ignored the fact that in the scheme of things, that, not, that unit number in the thousands did not amount to a lot of dollars. Isn't there some argument, though, that because so fewer smaller companies are going public, that you know, a very tiny portion of those small companies will eventually grow into one of the companies that drives the majority of an index's returns over time? So the example people use is you know, when Amazon went public, or since it's been public, it's up something like a thousand-fold, something like that. Whereas 40, yeah, 50,000 yeah, percent. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Whereas Facebook, which went public considerably later in its life, you know, it's only been public for a few for a few years now, but there's almost no reasonable chance that Facebook stock will ever be up a thousandfold because it just it went public at such a later stage. Correct. Correct. So, so more of the hyper growth returns, that small edge mm-hmm. of the tail that mm-hmm. drives the majority of market returns over time, are accruing to private investors and not public investors. Yes, correct. Interesting though, in raw dollar terms, let's take those two companies. So, Facebook went public at 100 billion, Amazon at 600 million, or something like that. But they've both created 
four and five hundred billion of of raw dollar value, which is it's always interesting, right? Like, yes, of course, Amazon's return has been astronomically higher, just in percentage terms, but they both created a whole lot of raw so, dollars for, so, for so, index investors. So you're saying that I, like Jason, just got excited at a large number <laughs> and thought that it meant something, something like that. <laughs> if you had to think back on the last year at the most kind of interesting field of ideas, individual idea that you've been tackling, what would that be, and what are kind of the key, maybe the key couple source bits of source data, um, whatever those might be, that that sparked that interest? Yeah. So for me, what's something that's been a, 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 a really fun discovery, not even the last year, this has been like the last month or two for me, is a service called Blinkist. I don't know if you're familiar with Blinkist. It's based on the idea, something that I think all three of us would agree with, but I believe for a long time, that the average book is way longer than it needs to be. The average 250-page book could be a 10-page essay, and you, and you can move on, on down the change. Even a lot of really good books, after about page 100, you say, okay, I get it. What Blinkist does is it does, and it's done this for thousands of books, is it basically summarizes books into a summary that you can read in about 20 minutes. And on top of that, they also have podcasts that summarize books in about 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, And so it makes it so that, and they do a very, very good job of distilling something down to its most important elements without losing any of the really important. Is this done by human beings or algorithms? No, 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 it's done by human beings. Yeah. But they have, I think they have about 2,500 books that they've done this for so far. It's a paid service, but it's been really fascinating for me because when it's distilled like that, and again, this is not a replacement for books, but I think what it's been for me is a good way to filter or to, to taste a book before I actually dive into reading it. Because since you can plow through the summary of a book in 10 or 20 minutes, that means over the course of a couple hours, you can really uh, get the bulk of the essence of 10 or 20 books and then figure out what you want to dive into from there. It's been a really fascinating tool that I've used for the last couple of months. I've never heard of it, but one of the questions I would have is, I think back in my own reading, like how many blog posts, which are maybe often the more appropriate length for the exploration of an idea, have had a real lasting impact on me versus often overlong books. And it would, just off the top of my head, I would think books is significantly outnumbers blog posts. And I wonder if it's just like time, just like forcing yourself to kind of sit with a idea or a set of ideas for longer. Well, I think that, I think somehow, that, and so maybe, maybe the use of Blinkist is really, as you said, as a, for, not as a replacement, but as a filter. It's a filter for right. it because you know, we were talking about earlier in the discussion. I think all three of us have no tolerance for bad books, but we still have to go out and pick up a bad book and read a couple pages, but it takes time. I think it's, I think using Blinkist or something similar, but I, I encourage people to at least check it out has, has really helped my reading process for filtering out what I want to read next. How about you, Jason? Mine, I guess, is a little more abstract, less concrete, and I don't want to make this too book-centric, but this was a very important experience for me. The best book I've read over the past year, I think you both have heard me talk about it before, is a, an amazing uh, novel called Life and Fate by Vasily Grossman, who was a, a, this just phenomenal Russian writer who sort of grew up during the Russian Revolution and lived through World War II and published this book in 1960. It's about the, it's about the siege of Stalingrad, among many other things. And uh, it's enormous. It's sort of structurally patterned after War and Peace by Tolstoy. But the book is so great that after you read 150 or 200 pages of it, you sort of don't want to do anything except read this book. But 
The reason I thought of it in light of your question is ever since I've read it, there's this thing that comes out of it almost like a like an aroma. You can't really get it out of your mind and your memory, which is that in a totalitarian state, I think the way I put this once is that an authoritarian state crushes the human spirit by destroying the human spine. And what's striking is over and over again, the characters in this book are corrupted by Stalin and the Kremlin and the the whole Soviet power structure. And it changes their thinking. And a lot of the people in this book are scientists. And gradually over time, their science changes, their view of their colleagues changes, and they no longer believe in the value of the evidence before their eyes. They can only see things the way they're told they should see them. And friendships are destroyed, families fall apart. In fact, spouses and children no longer trust their own family members because they've been told not to. And that's the really vital lesson that I took away from this book, which is that the human mind is not what we imagine it to be, which is some kind of incredibly powerful device for gathering and evaluating evidence and coming to conclusions based on the weight of the data. Instead of coming to conclusions based on the evidence, instead we look for evidence to support the conclusions we already have. And this book shows you just how corrosive that is for individuals and for society when people let that happen to them or when when it's forced upon them. And so I think as investors, as people, as citizens, it's just so important to put evidence first and do everything you can in your power to combat the tendency to to twist evidence to meet conclusions rather than to draw conclusions from evidence. And it is so much harder to do than it sounds because all of us think that's what we do. And in fact, usually we're doing the opposite. That's really encouraging. Well, this has been, uh, yeah, great, great, nice light place to add. Thanks, well, no, 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 no. Jason, I can't think of any modern parallels. Yeah. No, so, no, so I, I, I all right, so now I just have to add one coda, which is I, I don't think that's a discouraging conclusion because what, what it really tells you, and by the way, that book does not end on a, on a sad note. It ends on kind of a bittersweet, almost elegiac, happy note. But this is where human dignity comes from. I mean, human dignity comes from struggling against some force that's greater than you are. And I'm... Um, you know, ignorance, especially our own ignorance, uh, that's a lifelong battle to conquer that. And the fact that it's a hard battle doesn't mean that it's hopeless, and it doesn't mean that um, there's anything dark about it. It's, I, think it's, I think it's very positive. Well, this has been as, as fun as I knew it would be. This is a, a trio that we've been trying to get together for, for many months now, so I'm glad we were able to do it. Thank you guys both for the time, and I think we'll have to make it an annual tradition. Thanks, Patrick. <laughs> Thanks, Patrick. Hey, everyone. Patrick here again. 
To find more episodes of Invest Like the Best, go to investorfieldguide.com forward slash podcast. If you're a book lover, you can also sign up for my book club at investorfieldguide.com forward slash book club. After you sign up, you'll receive a full investor curriculum right away and then three to four suggestions of new books every month. You can also follow me on Twitter at Patrick underscore Oshag, O-S-H-A-G. If you enjoy the show, please leave a quick review for us on iTunes, which will help more people discover Invest Like the Best. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening.